Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Today, I want to talk to you about Here is Our God. Isaiah chapter 35 Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Advent is for waiting. As we tell the story of salvation through the Christian calendar, uh, we begin not with the celebration of the birth of Jesus, but we begin by waiting for Jesus. So you see how that works. We use the Christian calendar. You know, I didn't, I didn't grow up with the Christian calendar. Well, I mean, we had the bare minimum that everybody has. We had Christmas and Easter. Maybe a little dab of Good Friday, not much. Uh, but the way the Christian calendar works is we're telling the story of Jesus, but we don't start with the birth of Jesus. We start with waiting for Jesus. That's what Advent is. Um, most of us in this high-tech, high-speed, high-stress age, though, are not very good at waiting. How many of you say, I'm not very good at waiting? Waiting's not my strong suit. That's because we've been formed by this age. It's instantaneous right now. One click. Get it here. Come on, Amazon. What are you going to take like a whole day to bring it from Seattle? We're not very good at waiting because it feels too much like doing nothing. What are you doing? Waiting. What are you doing? Why are you waiting? Nothing. And we are a people who take pride in being busy. It's a strange pride. It's a strange pride. Nobody's ashamed to say, well, I'm just, I'm just too busy. There's, there's always lurking there a little bit of, oh, look how important I am. I mean, you know, people who, for I, all I can tell, don't have a thing in the world to do, will tell me how busy they are with a, with a touch of pride. I think that's a strangeness. I think that's unhealthy. I think we've been scripted in that. I think maybe, uh, maybe you are too busy, but certainly don't boast about it. Hang your head and say, I'm too busy. I'm trying to repent. Um, so we're not very good at waiting because it feels too much like doing nothing. Or worse yet, it's like lamenting. If you are waiting for God to do something, if you're waiting for God to act in your life, if you're waiting for God to show up in your life, it probably means that something's not right. You probably don't say, you know, things are just going great. I'm waiting for God to show up. <laughs> no, it's things are falling apart and things are not where they should be. And I'm dealing with this situation, but I'm waiting on God. So we're, we're not very good at waiting because it feels too much like doing nothing worse yet. It feels like lamenting. Yeah, with the loss of the Christian calendar, we've, we've turned Advent and Christmas into one thing, one season. 
But Advent is actually very different than Christmas with its strong theme of prophetic lament. See, the the thing is, the world has gone wrong and justice lies fallen in the streets and God is nowhere to be found. That's when the lamentation arises in our soul. Oh Lord, how long? Oh Lord, how long? Well, the Hebrew prophets, they tell us, they they say, Yahweh is coming and God is going to act, but for now we wait. We just have to wait. God's coming God's going to act, but for now we have to wait. Yet the waiting, the waiting is actually essential. You think the waiting is doing nothing. Oh, no, no, no. no. The waiting is, is really where you're doing what needs to be done, even if you're not completely aware of it. The waiting is essential because it's in the waiting that our soul grows still and contemplative. If we learn to wait in a proper way, it, our soul calms down. A stillness begins to be formed in the core of our being. A stillness begins to take possession of our soul. I think that's what patience is. I think patience is mostly a stillness of the soul. The, your soul is not troubled waters. Your your soul is like a calm lake early in the morning. That's patience. It's in the waiting that we learn to bring some stillness into our, stole, into our soul. And it's in that stillness that we gain a greater awareness of what God is actually doing. It's when our soul becomes still that we can discern what God might be doing around us. So yes, we're waiting for God to act. Or perhaps... We're not so much waiting for God to act as we're waiting to become contemplative enough to discern what God is doing. The truth is God is always acting. God is all because God is always loving his creation. God, well, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are always inviting us out of our house of fear into their house of love. But we have to become contemplative enough to recognize these things. So when we are consumed by anger and stoking perpetual rage and filled constantly with anxiety and driven by impatience, we're blind to what God is actually doing right now at the present moment. Because we think that what God has to do is be big And some explosion, something that that you couldn't miss. No, no. Most of the time what God is doing is easily missed. Because what God mostly does is very quiet. Jesus taught us that, but we didn't learn it. He said, it's like, it's like, what's it, what's, what's God coming among us? Like, it's, oh, it's like, you know, it's like wheat growing. (laughs) It's like bread that's rising. It's like a a woman sweeping her house. Well, none of that gets anybody's attention. Uh, See, that's why we need the stillness of soul. So we get quiet and we go, oh, oh, I think God is here. And I think God is acting. I think I'm discerning what God is doing right now. 
In his Rivers in the Desert poem that takes up the entirety of Isaiah 35, which is our scripture reading for this week, when Isaiah writes his Rivers in the Desert poem, Judah is in a bad way. Internally, it's filled with corruption. The government's corrupt. The uh, rich people are corrupt. The judges are corrupt. And externally, they're under threat from foreign invasion. And so, it's a bad time. But the poet of hope proclaims that God will come, and in that day it will be said, here is your God. He gives them hope. He says, okay, I know things are bad, but a day is coming when the announcement is going to be made. Here is your God. And Isaiah paints a picture. First of all, I mean, what's it like when God shows up? When, when the news of the day is, here is your God. He says, well, well you know, changes everything. Uh, the desert is no longer arid. There'll be streams in the desert and... and uh, There'll be vegetation and there'll be flowering and flourishing and fruit will, it'll, it'll just, instead of being like a, like, like the Mojave Desert, it's going to be like the most fertile farm country, like Carmel and Sharon, that's the, the fruitful plains. He says the desert's going to be like that. And then uh, he switches and he says, well, when God comes, not, not only will the environment be changed, but and be healed, but people will be healed. On the day that it is announced, here is your God. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dumb will speak, the lame will leap. Someday it will be said, here is your God. For now, though, there is nothing to do but to wait. But remember, the reason we wait is to bring a contemplative stillness into our soul so we can recognize what God is doing when God comes. That's Isaiah. That's a long time ago. Let's, uh, let's move past the period of long waiting. What do you say? Let's go to Matthew chapter 11, beginning verse 2. When John heard in prison... What the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. During Advent, we talk a lot about John the Baptist. I like John the Baptist. He's the culmination of the whole Hebrew prophetic tradition. He's the greatest. That long tradition of the Hebrew prophets. The original punk rockers were the Hebrew prophets. Yesterday was the 40th anniversary of the album London Calling by The Clash. So I was thinking about punk rockers and then I thought, you know what? The original punk rockers were the Hebrew prophets who saw what was wrong in society and sang about it. And there was none of them greater than John the Baptist. I mean, how great was this guy? He was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. 
When he came of age, he did not follow his father into the priesthood, but he went out into the wilderness because he was a prophet. And he stayed out in the howling wilderness and drew near to God, heard the word of the Lord out in the wilderness, and he was a strange cat. I tell you, he was a punk rocker. He just, you know, wears his camel hide draped over him and lives off the land. He's Jesus' cousin. Did you know that? And before Jesus started preaching, Jesus was still in, still in Nazareth being a carpenter. But John the Baptist starts preaching because John the Baptist is a voice crying in the wilderness. And his message is, prepare the way of the Lord. Because John is going to be the one that the prophets had foretold. The prophets foretold a prophet. Prophets are mostly talking about Messiah, but they said, but before Messiah comes, there's going to be a prophet that'll come. He'll be like Elijah. He'll have the power and spirit of Elijah all over him. He'll be a voice in the wilderness crying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. This is John. And the strange thing is, I mean, you'd think nobody would be interested in this person that halfway looks like a lunatic out in the desert, but they came. Oh, I mean, they came. They came in great crowds, great numbers. It was a phenomenon. Multitudes left the cities because he's not near any city. They're coming from Jerusalem and Jericho and all over to hear this guy preach. And most of the people, a lot of them anyway, uh, heard his message. I mean, they really heard his message to repent, to rethink everything. And they did, and they were baptized. Even Jesus came and heard John preach, and Jesus was baptized by John. Well, as soon as, as, soon as, as soon as John baptizes Jesus, well, then really, you know, John has done his thing. He's completed his mission, really. But, of course, he continues to preach because preachers going to preach. And he keeps preaching, and he goes after Herod for his sins, and Herod has him arrested. I was thinking... It's amazing how many of the absolute most prominent figures in the founding of Christianity end up in jail. John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, the other James, the other John. I mean, they all, they end up in jail. Paul, yes, and all except John, son of Zebedee, as far as we know, end up being executed after staying in jail for a while. I don't know, I was kind of afraid I'm going to go to the judgment seat of Christ and Jesus is going to say, Zon, how did you, you never got arrested? You must have been playing it safe. Well, anyway, he's in jail. John's in jail. Think about it. This is, this is an outdoorsman. This is a man that loves the wide open spaces. This is the one who's used to sleeping with nothing but the stars over his head. Now he's in a dungeon. This, this is not a man that was made for prison. I just thought about I'm feeling frisky today. Let's see. Uh, see, let me get it. It's coming to me. Uh, all the criminals in their suits and ties are free to drink martinis and watch the sunrise while John the Baptist sits like Buddha in a 10-foot cell, an innocent man in a living hell. That's his situation. I didn't plan any of that. I had to pull that up again. So here, here's this man. Here's this innocent man. 
And he's just stuck in prison. And you know what he's thinking? When's it going to start? I prepared the way. I pointed out the Messiah. Let's get this party started. When do we start killing Romans? And who's going to bust me out of jail? And how long am I going to have to wait? Because there I am. And we know that when Messiah comes... He's going to conquer our enemies. He's going to restore the greatness of us. So, you know, he sends a couple of his disciples. He says, go find Jesus and say, John has a question for you, and it's this. Are you the one? Or are we waiting for someone else? Yeah. Are you the one... Or are we waiting for someone else? Because we need this thing to get started. What are you doing? Doesn't seem like you're doing anything. Isaiah said, the blind, when, when it's announced, here is your God, the blind will see and the deaf will hear and the dumb will speak and the lame will leap. Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news. Preach to them. I mean, Jesus is doing all the stuff that Isaiah said the one would do and more. He's even raising the dead. Here is your God. Here is your God. He's Jesus. Here is your God. It's Jesus. God has come and it's Jesus. And yes, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dumb speak, the lame walk. And more than that, the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. And Jesus adds this, and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. John says, when's it going to start? Jesus says, this is it. It's already started. It's in progress. This is it. John is inferring, when does the revolution start? It started. Yeah, but I mean, when does everything change? It's changing. When do we start killing Romans? We're not doing that. And blessed is the one who's not disappointed in me. Blessed is the one who's not disappointed with how I really am. Here is your God. Blessed are you if you're not, oh, brother. I was hoping for something else. Now, Jesus does give John a mild rebuke. I mean, John says... Are you the one or will you look for someone else? Jesus says, this is it and blessed are you if you're not disappointed with it. But let's remember that Jesus then does go on and say, of those born of women, there is not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. Let's just get that straight. Let's not make any mistakes here. That I mean, if we're, if we're talking about the great ones. If we're talking about an Abraham or a Moses or a David or an Elijah, uh, John's the man. But 
Whoever is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. John is still just going to belong to the age of anticipation. John is not going to live all the way through to see the resurrection. And see how this, oh, I see how the, he's not going to, he, for all of his greatness, and no one is greater, he still belongs to the age of anticipation. So, we shouldn't be too hard on John, because first of all, Jesus said no one was greater. And he belongs to the previous dispensation, age, anticipation, all that. But the real reason we shouldn't be too hard on John is we're no better how often are we disappointed because we're thinking, Jesus, you seem like you should do more? I mean, we don't say it. But sometimes we think it. God, seems to me, Jesus, you could do something here. Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God and fulfilling all that the prophets had foretold. But because he did not conform to many people's expectations concerning Messiah, including John, uh, they almost missed it, and some of them did miss it. Here's the lesson, here's the sermon, here's what I have to say. Jesus will not serve any other cause, agenda, program, or politics. He's got plans of his own to set up his throne, and blessed is the person who's not offended at Jesus. That's my sermon. The Pharisees had their cause, but Jesus wouldn't join it. Pharisees had their cause. Their cause, their cause was purity. Purity. They were, the, they were the morality police of their day. And they just thought that what needed to happen is people needed to clean up their act. And they took it upon themselves that, hey, you there, clean up your act. And they had their cause of purity based in their own understanding of the Torah. And Jesus wouldn't join their cause. And that's why they got so mad at him. The Sadducees had their cause. And it was the temple. The Sadducees were the real conservatives. And they were all about the temple. And we've got to maintain the temple, and the temple's everything. And this is really, this is God's house, and nothing's more important than temple worship. And they're all about it. And Jesus wouldn't join their cause. Jesus even insinuated that the temple wasn't that important and was coming to an end anyway. So that's why the Sadducees didn't like because they would have gladly embraced Jesus if he joined their cause, but he wouldn't do it. The zealots had their cause. They wanted a violent revolution against Rome. They wanted 1776 colonists against the British Empire. And Jesus wouldn't join it. The zealots would gladly have had Jesus on their team. But Jesus wouldn't join it. The Essenes, they just, their, their whole thing was just forget this whole thing is a mess. And we're just going to go out in the wilderness and practice contemplative prayer for the rest of our lives. And they just, the Essenes just said, we're withdrawing from society. That was their cause, just completely withdraw from society and go save their own soul in quietness and solitude. And Jesus wouldn't do that either. The, 
the purity of Jesus is the purity of heart. Because Jesus knows that the Pharisees, once they appoint themselves as the morality police, are going to emphasize externals. And that's why he tells them, you guys, you're, you're, you're bringing down the whip on everybody, but inside your own heart, you're full of corruption and dead men's bones. You're, you're outside, you look fine, but in, in your heart, your old mess. The purity of Jesus is a purity of heart. Jesus believes in a temple, but not in a sacred building of stone. He believes in a new temple made of living stones. Jesus believes in a revolution, but it's a revolution of love. Because you're never going to change the world by killing the bad guys. That keeps the world the same. And Jesus does believe in withdrawal. He goes off into the wilderness. He goes off into the mountain. He goes off and he prays. He might even pray all night. But come morning, he's coming right back into town because he has things to do. He's not going to just separate himself from society and be pure all by himself. He's going to practice the prayer that will form him and then go so the withdrawal of Jesus is only so that we can be properly formed to be present in the world in a saving way so the Pharisees had their cause Jesus wouldn't join it Sadducees had their cause Jesus wouldn't join it Essenes had their cause Jesus wouldn't join it Zealots had their cause Jesus wouldn't join it today uh, the Republicans have their cause, but Jesus won't join it. The Democrats have their cause, but Jesus won't join it. Um, the conservative Christians have their cause, but Jesus won't join it. The progressive Christians have their cause, but Jesus won't join it. Now, we want to pretend that he does sometimes. I mean, if you're, if you're like a super-duper Republican, you're, oh, Jesus is on my team. No, he's not. If you're a super-duper Democrat. No, no, Jesus left the Republicans like 10 years ago and now he's on our team. No, he's not. You can be a Democrat, you can be a Republican. I'm me, I don't do that stuff, but you can, you can do that. You're free to do that. Just don't tell yourself that Jesus is going to join. Oh, heck no. Jesus will not serve any other cause, agenda program or plan he's got plans of his own to set up his throne and blessed are you if that didn't offend you the problem with the christian left and the christian right is that christian gets turned into an adjective what's really important is left or right and we want jesus on our team so we put a we put an adjective we call christian the christian right the christian left the problem is that Christian is reduced to adjective duty serving the all-important right-left. Christian is a great noun, if by it we mean a person who is intending to be formed in Christ's likeness. Christian is a great noun. It's a terrible adjective. When you hear Christian used as an adjective, it's usually an attempt to get Jesus on board with your own cause. And Jesus just won't do it. He just won't. It's why Karl Barth said in the 1930s, during the rise of Nazism in Germany, uh, that was supported by about 80% of the German evangelical movement that were supporting Hitler and the Nazis. Uh, in that context, Karl Barth says, God cannot serve, God can only rule. Now, he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean that God cannot enact 
the humility we see in Christ and serving that. What he means is God cannot serve some other cause, agenda, program, or politics. God can only rule. He's got plans of his own to set up his throne. Blessed is the one that's not offended by that. And we have to constantly make a conscious effort to submit to Jesus as he is. And that's why I think probably the two most important spiritual practices that I have in my life is to every day sit with Jesus in the Gospels. Just to come before Jesus and and try to be very deliberate in saying, okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to project my opinions, my ideas onto the Jesus I read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm going to let him be what he's like. And when he says things that don't fit my system, my theology, and sometimes Jesus does that, by the way, I just have to go out. I guess I don't have it all figured out because apparently I disagree with Jesus on this point. That's a good moment when I recognize that, see. I don't try to twist Jesus. Oh, come on, Jesus. You've got to believe like me on this. The other, the other practice is to, is to simply sit with Jesus in contemplative prayer, just sitting with Jesus, acknowledging His presence, just being in His presence. I've got a new book out. It's called The Unvarnished Jesus. It's a, it's a Lenten devotional. So it's designed so that the reader starts reading on Ash Wednesday this year. That's February 26th, I think. And uh, then 46 days later, you're right on the edge of Easter with Holy Saturday. And so there's 46 readings, about three pages per day, two or three. So it's it's short little meditations. Um, It's it's new material. I wrote it this summer. It's new material. I wrote it this summer. But um, it, it has a history. It reaches back 16 years ago. How can it be that long ago, Perry? Uh, when I was in New Delhi, India, having done a pastor's conference and had a couple of days in New Delhi before going home, and I was working on a new sermon series called The Unvarnished Jesus because I was becoming aware that, um, that I, had a, I had a lot of varnish. I had my American varnish and my Protestant varnish and my political varnish and my own personal theological varnish. I had a lot of varnish on and I wanted to do the best I could with the help of the Holy Spirit and Scripture to, to take that varnish off and take Jesus as he is. And I was going to really try to preach like that, but it made me, well, let me just read about it because I tell you, I talk about it in the uh, introduction. This is not one of the daily meditations, but it's the introduction of the book. On my second day at the Imperial, that's the hotel I was staying in. On my second day at the Imperial, working on these sermons, I was suddenly overwhelmed by a wave of anxiety. I knew the sermons would be good, but that they would also be dangerous. Presenting Jesus without a certain amount of mitigating varnish to an American church is not safe. I was plagued with thoughts like, how will this go over? How will the congregation react? Who's going to get mad and leave the church over this? I had to decide what I was going to do. So I left the hotel and went for a long walk through the streets of New Delhi, praying and trying to recover my nerve. 
When I returned to the hotel, I made up my mind I would preach the unvarnished Jesus as honestly as I could, come what may. On the long flight home, you know, I'm flying home from New Delhi. On the long flight home, I read Step Across This Line, a collection of essays by the Indian-born writer Salman Rushdie. In his essay on the Taj Mahal, I came across this paragraph. So I'm on the plane, flying home. In India, I had bought this little book at a bookstore, this collection of essays by the great novelist, uh, Salman Rushdie. And I read, I came across this paragraph. He's talking about the Taj Mahal. The problem with the Taj Mahal is that it has become so overlaid with accumulated meanings as to be almost impossible to see. When you arrive at the outer walls of the gardens in which the Taj is set, it's as if every hustler and hawker in Agra is waiting for you to make the familiarity breeds contempt problem worse, peddling imitation mahals of every size and price. Okay, I've been to the Taj Mahal three times, and Salman Rustig is exactly right. When you arrive there, it's in Agra. It's about an hour and a half train ride from New Delhi. You get there, you get out, and you can't see the Taj Mahal. It's behind these walls, and you're up close to the wall, and you can't see it. You have to go through the gates and all that to see it. So you don't see it, but outside, are, it's, it's, it's worse than he describes. Perry had a very bad experience. I took her there one time, and that almost just put her off. Just everybody's grabbing at you, and they, they want to be your guide, or they want to, be, they want to sell you. they got these little, you know, cheapo, little tiny little models of the Mahal. You must have, you must have this. And, and you just almost have to push your way through that. That's what he's describing. Uh, this leads to a certain amount of shoulder-shrugging disenchantment. Recently, a British friend who was about to make his first visit to India told me that he had decided to leave the Taj off of his itinerary because of its overexposure. If I urged him not to, it's because of my own vivid memory of pushing my way for the first time through the jostling crowd of imitation vendors, past all the myriad hawkers of meaning and interpretation, into the presence of the thing itself, which utterly overwhelmed me and made all of my notions about its devaluation feel totally and completely redundant. The building itself left my skepticism in shreds, announcing itself as itself, insisting with absolute force on its sovereign authority. It simply obliterated the million, million counterfeits of it and glowingly filled once and forever the place in my mind previously occupied by its simulacra. Now remember, I'm reading this on the plane and I go, Rushdie thinks he's talking about the Taj Mahal. He's talking about Jesus. That's exactly, that's Jesus. Is that right? That was it. That was exactly what I wanted to do with the unvarnished Jesus. I wanted a Jesus who had been so overlaid with so many accumulated meanings as to be impossible to see to once again announce himself as himself with the absolute force of sovereign authority and obliterate the million, million counterfeits. We put Jesus up there? There you go. That's... uh, that's what I'm preaching about. When, when, you, when you think that you have your cause, the Republicans, the Democrats, the conservatives, the progressives. Da, 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 da. And then you, you imagine Jesus as, oh, how can I help you? You know, let's get, let's get someone elected. Can I put some 
doorknob hangers out there for you? Once we start thinking that Jesus joins our cause, bring on the varnish. And we end up with an imitation Jesus that mostly just annoys people. And what you need is to allow Jesus to once again announce himself as himself in his own sovereign authority and just obliterate the million, million counterfeits. Well, here's what I've learned. When I allow Jesus to announce himself as himself, I'm never disappointed with Jesus. And when I see Jesus as Jesus, I say to myself, Brian, here is your God. I'm a Christian not because I believe that Christianity is always perfect. I'm a Christian because Christianity has Jesus. Amen. Stand up with me. That's enough there. I, I could have kept going, but I think that's enough for, for one Sunday morning. Yeah, applaud the idea of letting Jesus be Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's come to the table of the Lord.